Welcome to Diversity Matters, the podcast where every voice is welcome and every story is celebrated. Join Mike and his guests as they deep dive into the heart of diversity, equity, and inclusion. They explore whether real change is happening. Together, they open up honest dialogue that touch upon various DEI subjects, from inspiring conversations to challenging ones, with the hope of sparking thought-provoking discussions. Please welcome your host, Mike Seeley. Hello and welcome to the Diversity Matters podcast show where we explore different topics that address the importance and benefits of diversity and inclusion in our society and the workplace. My guest this week is Gabby Austin Brown. Gabby is a multi-award winning diversity and inclusion expert delivering consultancy, education and training to the events and hospitality sectors as founder and director of Diversity Alliance. She is also co-founder of the Diverse Speaker Bureau, which is dedicated to nurturing and elevating the voices of people from underrepresented groups and supporting businesses and organizations to diversify their speakers and speaker panels at events. Gabby regularly writes for a variety of industry publications, lectures on diversity and inclusion in events, and has appeared on many panels and hosted talks about diversity in and outside of the events industry. She's also co-founder of the Reach Event Management Scholarship Fund. Gabby, welcome and thank you for joining me on the show. Wow, that sounded so long. I'm really sorry for you. That, <laughs> I just did that to you. Apologies. Well, I, I think this shows how much you're actually doing in oh. this industry. You're doing so much. But let me start off by asking, first of all, yeah. tell me, how long have you worked in the events industry? And also, how did you get into it? Okay. Um, so events industry specifically rather than the DEI space or a bit of yeah, both? Events industry. Let's start with okay. that. So um, I had a career as a professional dance artist for around 15 years. And like any kind of physical activity that you do as a profession, whether that's football, which I know you're a fan, Mike, um, <laughs> boxing, whatever that is, your body only lasts a certain amount of time to its kind of best capacity. And I had a good innings, but I needed to see what I was going to do next for a career. And I got some coaching and guidance actually and did a bit of a, a career profiling um, test. And a few different careers came up and events management was one of them. So I did a bit more research around the industry, the types of roles that existed, where I think I would be best kind of placed. And then I went and did a course. I literally did a part-time um, diploma course with the Event Academy. Three, this was three months, two nights a week. But it was pretty intense, even though it sounds like it was um, quite easy, but it was very intense. Um, and it's actually certif certified by the Chartered Institute of Marketing. Um, and I loved it. And within three months of graduating, I got my first job within events management, um, event managing in a venue. And how long ago was that? That was in, oh God, I think it's about seven years ago now. Okay. Yeah. You know, you kind of skip the three years we just <laughs> had. And you're sort of like, I've said it yeah. about four years. I'm like, no, seven. <laughs> um, so tell me what, I know you've, you've, you've been in seven years in the events industry, but what was the actual trigger for you to focus on diversity and inclusion? Yeah, do you know what? It's always actually been a part of my life without me recognising that's what it was. I remember at school that 
we used to have a a school, um, and they're not called this anymore. I think they're called something else. But at the time, it was called a special um, educational needs school. Actually, maybe it's still called the SEN. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, and they used to come hang out with us, do pee with us, playtime, drama, and things like that. And I actually really enjoyed mixing and you know getting to know people who were different from me. But I recognise that some like some pupils were quite uncomfortable but I I wasn't I wanted to make sure that everybody was included so it was an instinct empathetic nature in me I guess that I could recognize they were different and some people were uncomfortable with that but I didn't want to be and I wanted to bring everybody together um but then later on in my my dance career I realized that dance is very much a, a an ableist kind of industry very much focused on appearance what your body can do what you look like and for me I knew dance was more than that it's it's self-expression it's creativity it's problem solving it's helping you feel good it improves well-being and that should be for everyone not just for somebody's body who moves in a particular way so I went and did a master's in um, community dance and focused on inclusion and accessibility within that but within the performing arts space and then went on to work in that kind of space for for a number of years actually until I moved into the events industry. So it's kind of filtered through my mm. life and, and come in at various points and um, the diversity, inclusion uh, and accessibility aspects. So did I answer so, your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, you bought your experience, I guess, from that into this industry. Mm. Um, but what was it about the industry that you thought, actually, you know, something has to change? And I'm yeah. going to do something about it. Of course. I would say that two two moments pointed out to me um, that were flagged. I joined a mentorship program for women in events, which is absolutely fantastic, called Fast Forward 15. Brilliant. Um, when I was on the program, there were three women of colour on there. And I was like, oh, this is pretty good. It's quite a diverse cohort. Mm. like it. And I just remember one of the um, coaches, I guess, mm. and she actively flagged that, wow, this is the first time we've had women of colour, like kind of like this many women of colour on the programme. I was like, oh, so this isn't a regular occurrence. Now to give fast forward 15 its dues, um, back in 2020, they really started working on making sure that the programme was more racially diverse. It wasn't that I was trying to be excluded and it just wasn't as much of a consideration. So I became an ambassador along with three other women to create more diversity on the programme. So that was number one. And the next one was there was an events apprenticeship programme that existed and there are many out there now. And the programme at the time was looking for people to support in making the apprenticeship programme um more uh, inclusive and to attract more diverse people and to support employers with how that they could support underrepresented people in apprenticeship programs and also support and um, the apprentices as well. Um, so I, I joined that committee um, and I just a particular focus on ex-offenders and how we'd support them onto event apprenticeship programs. So a couple of things that were already happening and then obviously in 2020, when we were all locked down in our homes, uh, everything came to light around uh, racial inequality with the racial inequality protests. And it brought back to me that the things that I'd noticed within the events industry and that there were issues around diversity. We, we were underrepresented with regards to people of colour, actually, and people with disabilities um, in the industry. And I'd already recognised that. And and the inclusion aspect is many areas of the industry that we weren't necessarily inclusive or accessible either. Um, again, for neurodivergent, those with disabilities, those from underrepresented backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, etc. So I ended up bringing all of my knowledge and experience 
from previously that from the dance world, I guess, and, and kind of brought that together with my event industry experience to to launch something that could support events and mice kind of organisations and hospitality organisations to improve their diversity, equity and inclusion efforts. So you deliver consultancy, you deliver education and, and training. Who, who do you actually deliver it to? What, what types of organisations do you work with? Yep. So I mostly work with event agencies, um, event agencies and venues. And I've worked with some associations, but I say predominantly event agencies. Quite often in the corporate space, there is kind of mechanisms internally, whether that is, you know, HR or a DEI lead, um, or there's in the wider organization, there's a bit more support in that area. Whereas with agencies, sometimes they're a little bit smaller. They might not have those official processes or an in-house HR team. Mm. So I think that's why my um, external support is probably, uh, you know, quite um, useful for them. So, and and also tell me that, you know, since you've come into the industry and, and through your experiences, what were some of the real issues or what are some of the real issues that, that you're seeing mm-hmm. um, within the industry? I think initially I drew on my lived experience as a woman of colour and then also some of my previous experience um, working in accessibility within the dance world. And can you remind me what your question was again? Apologies. No, no worries. I was just <laughs> trying to to understand as you've come into this industry what were some of the issues that yes. you've actually seen and particularly that you've just mentioned that you know you come in as a woman of color um, and some of it was based on some of your experiences it might be yeah. helpful to share what some of those experiences of course were. you know i'll start off with some of the the challenges and talk about my experiences but um i definitely say i think some of the Issues I noticed initially, particularly when there was a heavy, heavy focus on diversity and inclusion, um, slightly coming from a bit of a, f- a fear factor that you know, some organisations and companies were being a little tokenistic in their thinking and approach. So basically sort of saying, oh, we need a person of colour because we look like we're not diverse or we look like we're discriminating, uh, discriminating etc. Um, and this approach really is not looking at whether the workplace culture is inclusive and accepting of people from different backgrounds, um, what our systems and processes are around, you know, hiring, talent development. Um, and so, you know, I need, I wanted to educate around there's a lot deeper uh, things that need to be thought about and that need to be implemented before looking at how to diversify the workforce. And that's what I mean by some of the approaches were a bit tokenistic. And I think for me as a, as a woman of colour, as, as I mentioned briefly, when I first finished my event diploma, um, I actually really wanted to move into the experiential space. Um, I come from a creative background. I've always um, been creative in my approach and in my thinking. And I really thought this would be a great area for me to uh, to move into. I just, for my diploma, created a, a great event um, and product launch uh, where I got to demonstrate my skills in that area. And I just thought, yeah, this is definitely what I want to do. Getting into agency, which is quite ironic now that I work with agencies, but getting into that agency space, nigh on impossible. Number one, when I moved into the industry, I, you know, it's my second career, I was 35, and I couldn't be doing a, an internship or anything that was low paid. I couldn't even really start on, you know, 21, 22K a year. I have bills, rent to pay, all those things. Somebody who's a bit more mature, I have more responsibilities. So it kind of like, stopped me from being able to move into an area that I really wanted to move into just because of 
the way the systems really were, were set up and how and how you know candidates were being considered um, and that's partly why I ended up moving into venue because venue is a bit more in that hospitality spectrum and there is a little bit more diversity in in hospitality particularly in the lower rungs as as you know and that's why I ended up moving into the, the venue space even though that wasn't my first choice and that had always sat with me and I thought I don't want other people to experience this people who've got the skills the ability the determination the mindset to do a job should be given the opportunity to do a job and tell me when you you started the consultancy side in the education how how well was it received was it like an aha moment for those companies Mm -hmm. was there any pushback or did they think wow we've got a lot to learn and we need to start changing Definitely there was, wow, we've got a lot to learn (laughs) Um, as, you know, we start digging into what all of this actually means around how much we actually really need to start changing mindsets and behaviours and training leadership and and training the team in the workforce and, you know, applying different uh, processes away, you know, around the thing, the way that we do things. So there was definitely that, which then resulted in an, oh, gosh, this is going to be a lot. (laughs) And those that that were determined really were very, very engaged and really wanted that support in helping to come up with a strategy, a structure, a plan, do those education pieces. Um, Some organisations did the initial education piece, thought, oh, my gosh, this is too much, and then disappeared into the ether. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Probably just come back when they felt a bit more ready. But I think a lot of people um, didn't consider the amount of work that's actually involved in really yeah. attracting diversity and being a more equitable and inclusive and accessible workplace. But to give due to those that, you know, I worked with in quite the early stages of, of um, diverse, you know, diversity and inclusion consultancy in the industry, if they approached quite early on, they were very committed. And because of that, it was a bit easier to get mm. this work going, I would say. It was more for those who didn't really know where to start, wasn't even sure if they wanted to start. That That's often where the challenges were, but they just wanted to do something, just go, okay, we've done an unconscious bias workshop, tick, but there's no follow-up or no consideration on the overall strategy. That is changing a little bit more now, and that's coming from the pushback from clients or not even pushback from you know requests from clients because people have got ESG policies CSR policies now and these need to be met so now our agencies need to show how they're also contributing to this so now there's actually a, <laughs> a concrete reason why this needs to now be thought about and considered a lot more and so now we're, I'm seeing a lot more momentum and engagement in this area. And I know that certainly one of the key things you're you're working on and, and driving in the industry is around safeguarding. Mm. Um, I just wonder if you can explain a little bit more about what you're doing. First of all, explain what do you mean by safeguarding and just yeah. tell me a little bit about what you're doing to to address it. Right. So through the work that I do, I, I was getting um, quite often disclosures from people where incidents had happened at an event. And by incidents, I mean everything from discrimination, whether that is racism, sexism or homophobia, right through to things like sexual harassment and sexual assault. So really quite big, big mm-hmm. things. And, and people didn't feel like they had somewhere to go to actually offload this or share it or, or what the processes were for these sort of incidents to actually be dealt with. And initially I was looking at safeguarding with a lens on ensuring inclusive behaviours when we're attending events. That is like no discrimination, harassment, et cetera. 
and then a few kind of big incidents that that were kind of heavily publicized um in the industry occurred and i realized that there it's safeguarding is kind of all wrapped up in all of those things and that the industry some not all organizations didn't have proper processes in place to safeguard event attendees and also at the same time, actually, and before kind of uh, the big incidents that happened in the industry um, took place, so I'd already been approached by a couple of organizations that had issues at, you know, client conferences and wanted support on um, how to, what should be in code of conduct, how to enforce code of conduct, um, how to, how people can report on instances and then how these we dealt with and guidelines around that. So I'd already started doing this work and I realized it was very applicable to number one, all events and then also that discrimination and harassment piece and what I think should be including DEI policies around inclusion and inclusive behavior at events. It's all kind of rolled into one and safeguarding is essentially about protecting people in the environment that they're in. So they can get the best out of that environment, that situation, whether that's an education learning environment, whether that's a networking event, whether that's a celebration event. And that's what safeguarding is. People can participate in a safe way where they're respected and valued. And that feeds in and sits really well within the work that I do anyway. Mm. Um, And I felt it's not that I felt I had a responsibility, but I felt that perhaps maybe I had a voice and I had some experience to actually start spearheading and maybe guiding some organizations who wanted to start implementing safeguarding in their events um that i could basically support with that and it's kind of gained a bit of momentum now um, and i think it's an important part of any dei strategy whether that's yeah. internally or you know within events and event delivery great and tell me i mean particularly some of the things you touched on you know um discrimination um sexual abuse behavior mm. what what do you think it is that's that's really kind of driving that in this industry <laughs> i don't know if you have an answer but it's, it's well, an i do have an answer <laughs> fantastic <laughs> i think there's two things predominantly the events industry is still quite a new industry compared to other industries that have been going that have been around for ages and there the the industry was kind of started off by entrepreneurs basically who recognize that great so you know this is part of a marketing mix a marketing tool companies know that events can support with sales or awards rewards and recognitions or whatever whatever it is education conferences etc but obviously to kind of go into the entrepreneurial space particularly you know, many, many years ago, you had to have that backing. So whether that was, we've got that finances or support from friends or family, whether you're able to get loans from a bank to launch a business and favorable rates on these loans. So the people that were kind of moving into the entrepreneurial space were essentially, you know, white men who were able to get that backing back then. Mm. And so these uh, people are essentially leaders now of, you know, big agencies and organizations. And then the rest of the industry is predominantly women, as we know. And I think that there's been some residual, outdated, old-fashioned behaviours that have persisted and stayed where leadership have been able to kind of get away with inappropriate behaviour just because of who they are and their standing within the industry, essentially, and, and people being afraid to come forward and speak against these leaders because it might affect their job prospects, um, it might it might affect them getting work in the future. And so I think that's been a bit of a veil of silence of not wanting to rock the boat. So I th- think that 
disclosures haven't really happened. And then I think the second thing is, um, and I talk a lot about this sober inclusion because I've stopped drinking alcohol around four or five years ago. Um, and you really notice when you're sober events, some of the things that happen, you're like, whoa, this is a little bit inappropriate. And I think in the events industry, because there is a lot of that fun element, networking mm-hmm. or party vibes, there's that line between we've been at a conference, it's been a professional environment all day versus we're now moving into evening relaxation time. But actually, it's still a professional work event. But when alcohol becomes involved, sometimes people can forget that this is a professional environment and behaviors kind of change and and things happen that shouldn't really be happening so two things really people not wanting to question the leaders in our industry mm-hmm. and hold them to account and um alcohol at events which perpetuates sometimes this sort of behavior that's very interesting i mean particularly as you you talk about alcohol at events of course you know normally at the end of you know a successful event there is that element where people want to let their hair down a bit. They want to celebrate. There's various parties that that take place. Question for you. Is it a men-only issue? Is it predominantly men that are getting drunk and misbehaving? Or is it just people generally who consume too much alcohol that are behaving in this way? What's your thoughts? So I don't want to be man bashing at all. <laughs> it is it is predominantly men. However, mm-hmm. I have had that, and I've not witnessed these. So obviously, I can't verify the hundred percent truth. I wouldn't see why people would kind of fib about this. But there have been instances of women also behaving inappropriately, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes, you know, as women, we feel like we can get away with things a little bit more because we, you know, there's that power balance, isn't there? That I think sometimes. Mm-hmm. You, men particularly men in leadership roles have but actually women can be just as inappropriate as men as well and think that they can kind of get away with it because the power balance is different um so i'd I'd say it's predominantly a male issue from a sexual harassment Mm. point of view but from an inclusive behavior discrimination point of view it can kind of go across the board um in varying degrees so i think we've all got a responsibility to think about our behaviors and how we're um, interacting and addressing people yeah and what's the best way to to address this? Because I think that I can't ever see the removal of alcohol. Mm. You know, there are plenty of people that drink responsibly. Right? Yes. So I don't think the solution is to not serve alcohol at any of the events. Maybe some might be more appropriate than others. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess my question is, how do you actually address this? What types of messages and where do you place those messages to help people to understand that they need to behave better or, you know, we have a a zero tolerance policy around this. How how do we get those messages across? Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I've been considering this, (laughs) this a lot. And I think for me, the starting point is deterring Mm. from this behavior in the first instance Right. So we want people to know that actually this behavior is unacceptable and there will be ramifications around this sort of behavior, which is why, which leads very nicely on to why I'm launching a bit of initiative around safeguarding in events, particularly from a zero tolerance and uh, sexual harassment called Safe Space. Um, And basically that helps organizations with how to deter these things from happening through training, through initiatives, through code of conducts 
through reporting guidelines. But also the most important bit is having those processes in place where people can go to report any instances that occur um, and that knowing that they will be dealt with because it's part of a code of conduct, which every event attendee has received and uh, ticked to agree, uh, adhere to, for example. So everyone knows where they stand. But then the, there needs to be that process around what if something does happen and it gets reported, how is it going to be dealt with? Mm-hmm. Now, if all of these things are in place, hopefully that will then act as a deterrent and we see less of this sort of behaviour. And then the second piece is if we're folding safeguarding and perhaps safe space initiative into DEI policies and strategies, then it becomes part of that overall DEI strategy um, and can have a bit more momentum and a bit more push. So that's kind of like the way that that I see it happening. But this first thing needs to be that deterrent where people think, you know, same with um, sexual harassment in the office. Yeah. It just used to be like, you will be disciplined, potentially fired, and this will go on your employment record when you go yeah. for another job. There's a deterrent right there. Mm-hmm. And that's a similar thing that needs to happen within events, essentially, yeah. live events. So it's almost like having very similar policies that a, a company would have for their own kind of employees and their own structure out to the industry that actually talks not just to those organizers, but the exhibitors that exhibit, the yeah. visitors that come. I mean, this impacts everybody. And it's, you know, we, we spent a bit of time talking more about kind of the alcohol and the sexual behavior. But I think one of the other big challenges, particularly at the beginning of shows or the buildup of shows mm-hmm. is a tremendous amount of pressure to get a show ready on time. And of course things go wrong, you know, so there's service desks that that are in place, but if you have an angry exhibitor who has maybe not got his electricity turned on, so, Mm. you know, he he comes to complain, but comes to complain almost, you know, shouting, you know, verbal abuse side of it. That's also um, Mm. a major impact. And um, particularly for, you know, our operations and service staff who have mm. to receive these complaints and try and deal with these matters, mm. that mm-hmm. um, they may feel intimidated or mm-hmm. under pressure because, hey, this is an exhibitor that's spending thousands mm. of dollars or pounds with the organization. You know, mm. how, how best do I deal with this? And there should be a policy in place that also addresses things like that that too yeah well that's what code of conduct should be for it's for Mm. everybody as you quite rightly mentioned you know suppliers exhibitors staff organizers attendees it should a code of conduct should be seen and adhered to by everybody no matter your position or your you Mm. you know your role or or your um your involvement with with an event and i think that the comparison is when i was doing some work for a conference that had had some issues some kind of um, issues around harassment previously, which is why I was brought in. They had this concern as well that, well, actually, this person is a speaker who is uh, works for the company who's a sponsor. How do we manage this? It is very, very delicate. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you are the CEO, whether you are a sponsor, whether you're a speaker, whether you're an attendee, whether you're an exhibitor, we all have to adhere to the same code mm. of conduct and all know what the um, results are if, you, if we kind of go against that code of conduct, we break that code of conduct. Everybody's yeah. treated exactly the same. And it will take a bit of behavioural change as things do and getting used to things and, and recognising that we have to change our behaviours a bit. 
Um, and I know that things can get stressful, as you, st- as you said at the beginning of the event, but there's still ways that we can address yeah. people or mechanisms that we could put in place to support um, our exhibitors or, uh, you know, support those who are setting up our ops team and, you know, t- production yeah. team to help them get the best experience possible. Of course, there's always going to be moments of stress, but it doesn't mean that we're able to treat each other poorly or badly. And we need to start changing how yeah. we communicate with each other because we can still get things done without making people feel undermined undervalued or scared i would also say that i think majority of the time you know shows do run successfully without incident but i'm Mm. I'm pretty certain you know for this safe space program you've probably got a tremendous amount of support there's many people that will back it and support it when will we see it kind of launched into the industry what what's the next steps yeah so it's really exciting because the charter and the safe space charter has been created it is finished um the next stage is to um get organizations to pledge to the charter essentially and pledge their commitment to the charter and really we're looking for a proper launch september october this year with a, a big campaign to to match that um but actually everything all the background has been done it's now mm. ensuring that the industry gets behind it and supports yeah. it and that's good that takes a lot of uh, campaigning and yeah. <laughs> media marketing and things like that so that's the stage we're going through now over the summer for kind of that official launch september october and you know it will form it's really four simple uh, points on the charter, which is around reporting and supporting, um, implementing safety initiatives, accessibility, um, and messaging. Um, so it's not something that's super scary. It's quite simple mm-hmm. to follow. Yeah. Um, and that can be implemented in current processes, but it's also there to help companies and organizations consider like, Oh, do you know what? Maybe we need to do safeguarding training for our teams as part of mm-hmm. this initiative. Maybe we need to have that dedicated email set up. So it offers guidance, um, and that organizations can follow and then kind of commit to, but it, it's nothing super scary. It's quite, it's quite achievable, but it does help create that safe space for everyone who is attending events. And then we get a nice safe space logo, which they can put okay. on their event communications to show. And actually it's great as an outsider to go, Oh, wow, that's got a safe space mm-hmm. logo. We know that they have the reporting, the train mechanism, sorry, the training in place to support anybody that might be facing any issues at event. That makes me feel quite confident mm-hmm. um, in attending that event. And then if something does happen, I know that I'm going to yeah. be taken care of and that there's a process in place around that. That's really what the charter is there to do is support organizations and Fantastic. educate. And to also give that confidence and comfortability to any event stakeholder who's involved with an event. Yeah, that's great. And has this been driven through any of the um, um, the trade associations that are in place, like you know the AEO, for example, AUV, etc. That's they- the next step because that's okay. really important. Yeah, that's the next <laughs> step. So now that, you know, you have to get everything kind of in place, as you know, Mike, yeah. and I wanted that charter in place. I wanted to make sure it's covering all the areas that it needs to cover that. I have the resources and the best practice documents and guidelines to support yeah. support people with before asking them to implement something. Now that's all in place. Um, I've already got a few partners involved, but the next step is to approach those associations because obviously Super. their members can really benefit from all of this information and support. Um, So yeah, that's, that's the next piece. So that by the launch in September, October, we have the associations on board. We've got our key partners and then we start bringing everybody else into the pledge and the campaign. Brilliant. Sounds good. Thank you. Doing a little plug there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, good luck with it all. It's definitely (laughs) 
something that is needed. I agree. And, you know, the more companies, suppliers, everybody in the industry, you know, get behind this, I think we'll have much, much better shows um, for the future. It was really Um, important for me to not just dictate and sort of say, you need mm -hmm. to do this this, and this without having the resources, tools and support to to back you know, to help and support people. So that, that was really important to me. Yeah. I think something I think, we can... Yeah, and I think the important thing is that this hopefully should not be seen as something that, you know, we're beating people up with, but mm. more something that needs to be embraced within each company and, and get behind and, and fully support. And I think that's that's the way it's being played. So yeah, it's good. Right yeah. I that messaging <laughs> um, and the tone and everything will come across. Yeah. Um, there will be a piece out next week in, um, in not next week, next month, sorry, in conference news, just kind of like a little teaser preparing mm-hmm. the industry that this is in place um, yeah. with, you know, more messaging to follow around that. But it's it's about making the, you know, spaces inclusive and inviting yeah. for everyone and also supporting companies to make sure that there's no backlash when incidents and things like that occur and they know how to mm. address them. So, right. Now, I'm just going to switch gears a little bit because I'd love to know a little bit more about the work that you are doing with Reach. Oh, yeah. Um, scholarship yeah. Fund. Tell, tell me a bit more about what that is, how it works, and how, I guess, students that come through that and receive funding, what does it, what does it bring for them? Yeah, of course. So really... The REACH scholarship kind of came about, It was there was a conversation on Clubhouse. I wasn't actually involved in that conversation. And there was Martin Fullard, who at the time was the editor of Conference News. Um, there was Jonathan Sibley, who's senior lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan, and then Robert Kenwood, who is an industry uh, recruiter. Um, and they would talk about diversity and inclusion in the industry and talking about talent and talent pipelines. And they were just sort of saying, well, what can we do? Because it's not a huge amount of the diversity in the industry at the moment. And everyone's trying to hire diversity that doesn't exist in the industry. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's a paradox. So what can be done? Um, and then following the conversation, they reached out to me to see if I had any thoughts or opinions. And, and then Jonathan at Manchester Metropolitan said, well, do you know what? Look, we have a scholarship program, um, which is for um, first generation university students so it supports um students who are the first person in their family to go to university and then we also thought well why can't there be something for the events industry like mm-hmm. that that specifically supports minority ethnic which is where we're you know hugely underrepresented in the mm-hmm. events industry how we can support minority ethnic students onto event management degrees and what the findings have been around that has been that any minority ethnic students that do come and join degree programs quite often end up dropping out usually due to financial um, implications or issues, um, whether that's because they have to stay at home and they have to travel back and forth to university, whether they're supporting family members or they have other jobs. So they, t- they were dropping out before they graduated. So we thought having a scholarship that would support with living costs for minority ethnic students, black, Asian, etc., cetera, um, would hopefully then in- encourage more students to number one, want to study on an event management degree because they'll get support and to finish their event management degree. So this like directly addresses the diversity in the talent pipeline into the events industry, essentially. Uh, we've been going, We our first university partner was Manchester Metropolitan University, our second, and the students started last September. So they're moving into right. their second year this September, October, um, which is really exciting. And um, we've got fantastic feedback around how the scholarship is really supporting them. And then our next university is University of Hertfordshire, Hertfordshire, sorry, and then students starting their 
in October this year and then the following year, our university's University of Bournemouth. And it's not just about the financial support that organisations can give to the REACH scholarship. So we do ask for organisations to donate for three years, £5,000 per year to support students on the programme and um, on their degree programmes. But it's not just about that monetary value. It's also about providing opportunities within the industry. So whether that's mentorship opportunities, work experience, internships, the participating organisations can go into universities and deliver talks or lectures. Mm. It's about building those relationships and connections between employers and the universities, as well as supporting the minority ethnic event students on the programme and giving them opportunities which have sometimes been unavailable to them so really proud of it and really excited and we've just been nominated for two awards one at the MNIT award for best EI initiative and also at the CNIT awards as well so really proud. Fantastic and it, it will probably be great to see the first set of graduates that come through it and um, you know the opportunities that hopefully will present themselves to uh, to these students the worst thing that can happen the bit we really don't want is to have all these amazing students graduate <laughs> and then they can't get a job so yeah. that, that defeats the purpose so yeah. that's good you said that's gonna be the proof in the pudding when mm-hmm. you know those students come out into the industry but we're already integrating them in the, into the industry by inviting them to events and then connecting them with the industry already so they can build and form those relationships right. and we offer guidance around networking even whilst they're studying um amongst the industry so fingers crossed it's going to be really impactful excellent and also one of the many things that you are doing as well is your lecturing yeah (laughs) tell me a bit about that how is that that going what what do you specifically what's your specific topic or subject area so i i actually now lecture on the postgraduate program of the event academy at the Event Academy. So I did a diploma, but they do online courses, part-time courses, and a postgraduate diploma as well, which is a year's programme. So I actually lecture on that, and it's all around planning and delivering Mm -hmm. um, events that are diverse, inclusive, and accessible. So it's around looking at, basically, we cover the why so why this is important, why we need to be inclusive of diff- people from different backgrounds with different experiences and identities. So that's really important. Looking at the kind of like um, legal pieces around that, obviously equal opportunities, the Equality Act and all that stuff, and then moves into the practicalities of, okay, what about diversity in content, whether that's like imagery, speakers, um, inclusivity in language and terminology that's used in comms, signage, all that sort of thing. So it's it's how then diversity, inclusion and accessibility actually feeds into the event planning pro- process and the delivery of an event and what those considerations need to be. So it's really Excellent. interesting. And I've also just done a lecture. Um, sorry to cut you off there, Mike. I'm new finished. <laughs> <laughs> I've also just done a lecture for um, lecturers on the program as well because, oh. yeah, because um, they were noticing that, again, feedback around, you know, we want to know if we're using the right language and terminology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone's very happy now to speak out when they've heard something that might be considered a little bit outdated or yeah. off. And they want to make sure that they're up to date when communicating with students, writing or when That's they're great. lecturing. So I did a, a lecture on that as well recently around language, language and terminology as well. So Brilliant. it's interesting. Right, we are coming up to the end of the show, and I'd just like to ask you, tell me, what, what is next for you? What's your next big plan? I think I need to slow down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so do you know what? <laughs> you know what? The roots, you know, the seeds have been planted, the roots have been tended, the grass has been watered, and I think now I need to let things move and flourish mm. um, as as they 
will, essentially. Yeah. Um, I've been doing a lot of pushing, pushing, pushing because it's been needed, but I also need to step back and watch things flourish yeah. um, and also take care of my, my own well-being because, mm. um, you know, this can be challenging work. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, accessibility is about people. And it's always complicated when it's things are about people because a lot of yeah. emotions and things like that are, that are involved. And, and sometimes that can take its toll a little. So I need to be, be mindful of that. But I feel like I've given the energy and the drive to put things in place. And now I'm going to sit back, not sit back a little, but now I'm going to focus more on, um, the consultancy pieces and the training yeah. pieces within organizations now that the big kind of big initiatives have been pushed out, you know? Yeah. That's fantastic. Any final words or comments you'd like to make? I'm just so delighted that you invited me on today. <laughs> Obviously, we met a, a few years ago yeah. and, you know, we've had great conversations and I've loved your journey and it's great to be able to catch up with you and share what's been going on in my world and learn what's been going on in your world and, and share yeah. on this brilliant podcast. So congratulations on launching it and having some fantastic guests and I'm, I'm honoured to be amongst them. Well, thank you very much. Well, you know, Gabby, I just want to say you are doing so much, you know, winning awards for it too. Um, I think you are certainly influencing and helping to change uh, the industry as we see it today. Long may it continue. Um, and I certainly look forward to seeing what's next. And, and I'm sure we'll be in, in touch anyway and, um, you know, continue to, to work together and, uh, and we will meet with each other from time to time and just to, to share our experiences. Exactly. So I just really want to really thank you for coming on the show, sharing your experiences, but also sharing some of the key initiatives that you're working on as well. So thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Okay. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Diversity Matters. We hope that through our discussions, we have brought a deeper understanding of what diversity, equity, and inclusion truly means for each one of us. Remember, the journey towards true diversity, equity, and inclusion is ongoing. Let's continue to champion these values in our lives and strive for positive change together. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to like and subscribe to Diversity Matters on your favorite podcast app.